0: In your Bibles, in Romans chapter 3, we're going to start reading in verse 19. This is a message simply entitled, The Five Solas. We'll explain what that means as we go along. And after we read this portion, we're going to look at verses 19 through 28. And then we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 after that. We're going to read this, I'm going to talk in a long introduction, and then we'll come back to this section of scripture and see what we see in here concerning these these five things that we're going to be talking about. Verse 19, Romans 3, if I remember right, I copied and pasted the uh, modern King James version here, but we know that whatever things the law says, it says to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be under judgment before God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. But through the law is the knowledge of sin. So here right away, in case I don't get back to this later, verse 20 shows the purpose of the law. The law was given to show that we cannot keep it. The law was not given for us to put our hands on the plow and keep it and earn salvation with it. It can't be done. This verse, these two verses we've already read, says that it can't be done. Verse 21, but now a righteousness of God has been revealed apart from law. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, where it says being witnessed by the law and the prophets, that's talking about the, some of the writers of the Old Testament, the early part of the Old Testament. Even, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith of Jesus Christ toward all and upon all those who believe, for there is no difference. There is no difference. Racially, it doesn't matter what all the distinctions of who you are as a person, where you live, how much money you have, what race you are. There's no difference. They've already said that in the early part of chapter 3, by saying that all are under sin, no matter who they are, both Jew and Gentile. And here he kind of is redundant about it again. For all have sinned, verse 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we know the glory of God is Jesus Christ himself. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, and that word propitiation means a satisfaction of law and justice, through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness, Christ's righteousness, through the passing by of the sins that had taken place before in the forbearance of God. For this display of his righteousness at this time For him to be just. A God of justice. And the justifier. Of the ones believing in Jesus. Verse 27. Then where is boasting? Where where is bragging? Do you have any right or space to brag? No. It's excluded. Through what law? The law of works? No. But through the law of faith. Therefore. We conclude that a man is justified by faith without the works of the law. Now go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and toward the end of the chapter reading in verse 29. 1 Corinthians 1, 29. In the context here it talks about Different responses from people and and maybe some objections from people and the different type people that we're dealing with. Those that have worldly wisdom and those looking for a sign out of both the Jews and Gentiles. But it talks about the gospel being the power of God unto salvation. And it shows that God uses things that we would not as human beings think to use. He uses the weak things of the world. To make manifest his presence and his strength and his truth. And the reason being, it says in verse 29, 1 Corinthians 1, so that no flesh should glory in his presence. There's no honor, there's no praise, there's no glory, there's no bragging, there's no boasting in the flesh of man, in the will of man, in the conduct of man, in the law keeping of man, in the religion of man. Nothing that he can glory in. So verse 30, it says, it says starts out with, but, in other words, counterwise, of him, of God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus, who of God, of God the Father, Christ Jesus, is made unto us. This is talking about believers. He's writing the church at Corinth who he called believers and saints, those that were beloved of God. And we can, we can say the same thing. If we believe the same gospel, we can say the same thing that he's saying this to us also in this context. So what is Christ made unto the believers? Made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that, here's another so that, here's the reason. According as it is written, And when it says that, it means Old Testament. And here's what is written. He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So we'll go back and visit some of those uh, verses here in a little while. Kind of give a kind of longer introduction and uh, a couple of points. And then we'll get back into the text and uh, I, I don't want to make this a two-parter, so I am gonna might fly through some of this. Some of this is going to be history. Some of you already know it. And um, if you have any questions about that, we can go back and I uh, can give you references and things. This stuff's readily available because of what this weekend is. It's Reformation Day week in the year. So this is the 500th year anniversary of Reformation Day. Actually, tomorrow the 31st, is officially Reformation Day, quote-unquote. Back in 1517, Martin Luther, the German monk in the Catholic Church, started reading the scripture, and he saw the Catholic Church was lying and ripping people off financially. And so he made a list of uh, 95 complaints called the 95 Thesis, And he nailed that to the door of a Catholic church in Wittenberg, Germany. And it sparked the flames of what has been called the Reformation. Now, even though there were men who preceded, went before Luther, who had done sort of some of the same things and same teaching, and actually who were killed for it, there was a disadvantage, in my opinion, there was a disadvantage because the printing press hadn't been invented yet. Right at the time when Luther uh, did this, the printing press came on board, and it's just, like, it's just like us getting the Internet. You know what I mean? You can just spread stuff. One of the main issues that's kind of like a you would think it would be a no-brainer for just about anybody from the outside looking in was this thing. One of his complaints was what's called indulgences. And what it was was this doctrine that the Catholic Church made up Of some mythical place called purgatory where the souls of of men and women went and were held until they could somehow pay off take punishment and depending on how bad you were the longer you stayed in but you could get your people your dead relatives out early if you would give money to the Catholic Church so in Germany especially there were just a lot of peasants they could barely afford to eat much less give money to this scam. And when uh, Luther exposed this and and later translated the Bible into German, the common language of the people, because not everybody knew Latin or Hebrew and Greek, these people, it was not only a, a reformation, but it was a revolution. It even like bled into the political scene and there was some violence involved and some tearing down of church buildings and idols and stuff like that. So they reacted, uh, they were mad, you know, of course. So then the inventing of the printing press, and then the Protestant Reformation took off. And the Protestant Reformation was, and I'll get into what groups it were made up of just here in a second, but it set forth a foundational set of biblical principles held by theologians and preachers concerning the doctrine of salvation and um, Protestantism could be divided up perhaps in, in two major heads of Lutheran and, and Reformed. And so these individuals they or groups came out of the Catholic Church way back then or were forced out, excommunicated, and they started to separate and form their own groups or denominations. And they taught, in essence, what's commonly called the five solas of the Reformation, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Let me just name a, couple, a few names here. And some of these preceded Luther. Uh, John Wycliffe, or Wickliffe, he was in the 1300s. John Huss, he was also in the 1300s. He was burned at the stake by the Catholic Church. William Tyndale, Tyndale and Wycliffe, Wickliffe, both were involved in translating scriptures. And they're part of what we're reading today, part of our English Bible. He, William Tyndale, was also burned at the stake. And then Luther, and we know some about him. And then later, a little bit later, John Calvin. Uh, Luther was in Germany. Calvin was in France, and um, John Knox was in Scotland. So all over the European nations. And then there were there were other names, and these are the most popular. There are other names before. In between and after and um, these are some of the characters involved that you can easily readily find some information on now these five solas I just want to talk about these briefly and then get back into our text and then see some of these now the five solas uh, these are Latin phrases and I'll name them and explain just briefly what each one is the word sola first of all means alone Sola Scriptura, that means by scripture alone. Uh, sola Fide, faith alone. Sola Gratia, by grace alone. Sola Christus, by Christ alone. And Sola Di Gloria, to God be the glory alone. Now we hold to these things. We believe these things. And, be, and in case I forget to say it, These things were already in the scripture before these people, you know, pinned out these five things. And they did these five things to make a contradistinction from what was being taught in the Roman Catholic Church about the basics of salvation. And just as most anything must be interpreted, people can make anything fit their own interpretation for their own agenda. I'll give you a few examples. The easiest one, of course, is the Bible itself. I mean, we see groups out there that call themselves Christians that use the same Bible we do. And they pervert and they twist what the Scripture says. And they make it say what they want it to. And if you say it loud enough and long enough and you've got a group you can... Uh, You know, brainwashed and hypnotized. They're going to be a part of this group for whatever reason, social, whatever. And they're just like, hey, yeah, I believe that. And boom, there's a denomination. They're starting up all the time. There's probably one starting today. Some kind of new heresy. But you can make the Bible say whatever you want. And you're going to be wrong, too, if it doesn't say what it says by the proper rules of interpretation. There's a famous book, we have a couple copies over here. It's called Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan. And it's written in the same style that the Bible is written. Real flowery language, Shakespearean language, Elizabethan Shakespeare type language. And it's a lot of allegory and stuff, and all kind of people love reading it. It's there for a while it was the second bestseller to the Bible for, you know, a few hundred years until False prophet Rick Warren uh, wrote his book on the purpose-driven life, and it it passed up Pilgrim's Progress. But Pilgrim's Progress is a book that you you can make it say whatever you want by misinterpreting it, not knowing the theology of John Bunyan. And The Five Solas, same thing. And lastly, even the doctrines of grace, or what we call sovereign grace, what we hold to. I continue to see it. We find groups and see groups that say they believe in the doctrines of grace, and then you you look at what they hold to and the things they preach, and it's it's almost unrecognizable what they're saying when you say what they're saying. Compare it with what the Scripture says. You could say the same thing about maybe popular, famous confessions of faith that are Reformed or sovereign grace or Calvinistic. People can take those confessions of faith or articles of faith and and they can interpret them and make them say whatever they want. So that's a danger. So this is why we must never stop making distinctions, give definitions, explanations, and speak the truth in such a way that there is no way that people can say that they're misunderstanding what we say. I mean, that's the goal. We have to be Faithful in this part of the ministry, and I can't uh, emphasize that enough. And it's it's a part of the major problem today uh, among the so-called Christian world, and we know that. Now, historically, in the early church, up until now, there have been believers who have never been a part of the Catholic Church or have split out from them. There have been those believers. And uh, these have been aggressively persecuted. You can read about them throughout history. They have a bunch of different names. Some of them are kind of like named after leaders of the movements. But some of them were killed, persecuted, killed. And a lot of their writings, the Catholic Church is famous for taking people's writings and destroying them so they can't pass them on to the next generation. And we want to say that I would identify with those people more than the Reformed people. We officially here, and it's, it's on in our website and stuff, and if anybody ever asks me, I tell them that we officially are non-denominational. You can't fit us in a box. We have our own confession of faith that we've drafted up, that is, we believe according to the Scripture, and we won't be put in a, um, some type of a convention or some type of a central form of government. It's a federal central controlled government outside of our control, where they can can make changes and decide whether um, they're going to change the rules as things in midstream. We don't, we're not playing that game. We are, we are independent. We hold to the scripture alone, which is one of these uh, solas that we're going to be talking about. And we do not hold to many of the traditions of the Reformed Church that came out of Rome. And on top of that, even people like us have been persecuted by the Reformers. There's a lot of writings on this. Some would not agree with infant baptism, and some of the Reformers would drown some of these, for lack of a better label, uh, Sovereign Grace Baptists. They would drown the Armenian Baptists too. And and we don't identify it. We think the Armenian Baptists are, are they're false. They believe a false gospel. But there's been persecution, and, and if anybody needs anything to read on that, I can we we have some stuff over here. And I can point you to some other literature that goes over that. So getting into the like the next phase, I want to talk just briefly about, and I think we've mentioned this before, about Reformed theology under the umbrella of of what's commonly called Calvinism versus sovereign grace. Some people might say these are synonymous, and they can be. It depends on who you ask. Because somebody asks me, are you a Calvinist? And now I say, well, what do you mean? It all depends on what you mean. And it's important to do that because everybody has a different idea. So I just want to talk briefly about the age of the truth that we hold to. Calvinism, of course it takes on the name John Calvin. Martin Luther was before John Calvin. he believed some of the things Calvin believed. but they sometimes want to point back to Augustine, St. Augustine back in um, he was born 354 and he died in 430 AD. And he believed some of these tenets of what we hold to and uh, which the five some of the five solas fit in his doctrine. But we always want to emphasize that the truth we hold to, first of all, should not be named after a man. And the truth that we hold to is older than any of these men. Since we believe in scripture alone, we want to emphasize these truths came from the scripture, not from Augustine or Luther or Calvin or anybody else. So I have a habit of using the phrase sovereign grace which is the ancient truth of God from the scriptures taught by the prophets the apostles and Christ himself and the early church you can look at early church documents there were some goofballs in the early church too they were teaching some crazy stuff but I had a a Presbyterian friend send me a bunch of quotes from some of the quote-unquote early church fathers I was amazed at the precision of some of the things they were saying just like us but we don't have to lean on that for our faith we've got it in scripture we say scripture alone do we really believe it Uh, that's just like presuppositional apologetics you know we believe we presuppose everything in the scripture is true and I don't need to find uh, Noah's Ark sitting up on top, top of Mount Ararat and say there it is I knew it I knew it was true after i see it on that mountain in turkey same way with this these doctrines I, I you know if i find something that was written in the first century and say i i knew they believed no it, we already believe what the scripture says so the the backing or authority for what we believe is from scripture alone it's not from tradition it's it's not even from a confession Scripture alone is before confession. It's not some state church forcing their stuff on us like it used to be. So the authority or the backing for what we believe is from Scripture alone. So even denominations uh, claiming not to be a part of Rome sometimes still have their methods and their traditions staining them left over by the Catholic Church. And we see that all the time. All right, so, secondly, under this point, our mother is not Rome. I say mother, I'm referring to church. You hear some people talk about the mother church. And you'll hear some of the reformers, I mean, that I don't know, they can't get out of it. They, they have to say they came out of Rome. She ain't my mom. She's a whore. And um, nothing good is there. And if you come out, you should come out all the way and separate yourself, which I believe traditions should be separated from too. I know there are secondary issues. And um, some people are, some Presbyterians, and Reformed people are able to fellowship with me and I'm able to fellowship with them. And a lot of times you'll find out pretty quick who those people are the ones that hold to the gospel of sovereign grace like we do and make this gospel of sovereign grace the only gospel available, usually those Reformed people will say, we'll keep secondary issues secondary. We will fellowship with you on the gospel. And then there are others that raise their tradition above the gospel, and they can't stand to be around one who would be a sovereign grace Baptist. They do anything they can to slander and malign and, you know, we're like second-class citizens. But those that, as I said, find those Reformed Presbyterian and those groups out there that agree with us and stand with us on what the gospel is and will not tolerate false gospels, and you'll find those people are pretty faithful friends. I've found, I found some. So, our mother is not Rome. Peter was not the first pope, Right? Nor does any pope have any authority. No pope has the authority of anything spiritual at all. He's of the spirit of Antichrist. People in the scripture are commanded to come out of these Babylonian religions and be separate and touch not the unclean thing. And and it just basically goes back to don't have anything to do with anything that smells like works for salvation. It's false, false religion. It's the Antichrist religion. Even if it's grace plus works, even if they try to slide in works into sanctification through the back door, they might say, "Oh, salvation by justification is all. It's all, you know, monergistic by God by through faith." And they do the five solos there. But then sanctification comes in, and they swing that through the back door, and they the thieves and the robbers climb up another way for final salvation. And we're seeing more and more people jump on that boat and are being exposed as time goes on. Another thing about uh, our type of group, historically, we don't kill people that disagree with us. We don't burn people or drown people or torture people that don't agree with our doctrine. We don't convert by the sword or through the state, which a lot of other groups have. I alluded to earlier, we don't have a centralized form or type of government that's federalized that has a concentrated power that's ripe for corruption. We don't want to participate in that. So having said all that, those are just some high points of, of, of what we're not and how we don't identify with Rome or, or never have. And Now, somebody in this group, I mean, I don't know everybody's history, but somebody in here might have come out of a Catholic church before they came here and you can honestly say you came out of that church. But I'm talking historically what we lean on as a type of church and and what we concentrate as a local church as being. We don't want to identify with those tentacles of Rome. So having said all that, I want to ask this this question. Is there room to improve the church, quote-unquote, I know I'll get in trouble with some some landmarkers, the group I came out of was raised in. Landmarkers do not extend the church beyond the local church. They would not call the the universal body of Christ the church, which I, I do see that used in Scripture, that we can do that. They would not do that. But... When we talk about the church, we can, talk, we can go ahead and say this local church and the universal body of Christ, all believers. The question is, is there room for improvement in the local church and, and all believers that gather or that can't gather that maybe listens to us on Facebook or goes to our website or listens to sermon audio? Are there areas of improvement personally within a family Within a local church, within their documents, within everything about their church, are there room for improvements? Could we learn more? That's an improvement, right? Because if you learn more, you're going to maybe talk a little more clearer, more precise, more advanced as the congregation comes along and as you yourself personally come along. Just making disciples, you know, and teaching people all things that were written. Can we say things better? Yeah. Whether you want to call that reform or not, uh, you know, I don't care. We could call it renewal. Uh, we The scripture does talk about us renewing our minds. So that's improvement, right? Some churches talk about revival. And people have different ideas about what revival is. I know there are some churches that um, might need that. Do you think we need that here? It all depends on what your definition is. But you know, there seems to be some lackadaisicalness in this local church. So if revival would wake some people up to a certain extent, I, I say yeah, you know, if that's what it means. But it's just like any other term, you can assign your own definitions unless you agree what we're talking about. And you'll ask ten different people, you get ten different answers. So but my main point is improvement. And then taking our information and furthering it, you know, just all the things that the church does, evangelism being one, propagating the gospel to the next generation, our current generation to the next, leaving our documentation, our confession of faith, books, sermons, just leaving that for the next generation and spreading it, not just here in this room, but all over the world. And we, we just talked about the missionary earlier, and that's part of what the idea there is. So yes there is. In my opinion there is that need. For positive change. Growth. Learning. And we talk about growth. In the knowledge. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in one sense. That is that is progression. No doubt about it. I'm not calling it progressive sanctification. Because um, it's not. But. We have space to improve individually, in the family, the local church, and helping those outside this local church. And you know what? That, that idea right there, I, I just can't get out of that, that out of my mind. I've been thinking about that for 30 years. Because wherever, it's like we talked last week and the week before. Wherever we look, we see things that seem to be broken and things that are not, they're just not right. They're not healthy. Theologically, spiritually, doctrinally. So improving those things, working on those things, feeding people spiritually, helping, ministering, it's service. Service is exactly what I'm talking about. Extending service more aggressively, further out more often. We looked at Hebrews 10.25 last week, talking about forsaking not the assembly of ourselves together, and again, it's not, a, it's not to beat people up about attendance, but the, the purpose is for, for growth. And it says even, we do this much the more as you see the day of Christ, judgment day, coming. So we ought to be engaged in, I don't care what you call it, reformation, renewal, revival, improvement, some type, press for that. That should be our goal to know how to talk about Christ better, point people to Christ better and more often, Spread the fame of the Lord Jesus Christ. That should be our goal. Now, we know throughout time uh, when heresies would pop up throughout each generation, God would, He would seem to raise up either particular men or groups to counter those heresies. And they would leave behind books, articles, or a confession or something that would counter that. And So the next generation would see that and learn from it and watch out for that heresy. This has happened for a couple thousand years. This is part of what I was just talking about. Reformation, renewal, or revival. It's improving things, being more clear, getting information out. It's part of evangelism and apologetics. It's part of the ministry. Some churches have, or network of larger group of churches... ...have had splits because of compromise. I've seen it for three, three decades. And um, it's something that I have to pay attention to. Because I don't want to fall out on the error side of, of who went where. I have to follow the truth of what the scripture says and dictates. So this is how a lot of denominations are formed. And, you know, just because a denomination is new... Doesn't mean they're bad. That's just like a translation of the scripture. Just because it's a newer translation doesn't make it bad. That, uh, that argument, we, we've dealt with that before. It's a faulty argument. So the more modern problems with people who claim to believe some of the things we believe. But they're saying some of the things that would make the Roman Catholic Church smile. And I'm going to give an example. And this is pretty current. We are familiar with the famous guy that claims to call himself a Sovereign Grace Calvinist Reform guy. This guy's a Baptist. He's a part of the um, Gospel Coalition. We've heard his name before, John Piper. Now, in a forward to a book by Thomas Schreiner, the book is called um, Faith Alone. It's on justification. I want you to hear this quote that's in the the forward of this book, and remember the book's called Faith Alone. All right. He says, "I dictated this from a video, and it's it's pretty accurate. I went over it a few times." The stunning Christian answer is sola fide, faith alone. But be sure you hear this correctly and precisely. He's getting our attention. He wants to be distinct here. Good job. That's what what we should do. But what's he say? He says, Right with God by faith alone, not attaining heaven by faith alone. There are other conditions for attaining heaven, but no others for entering to a right relationship with God. In fact... One must already be right with God in relationship by faith alone in order to meet the other condition. Now, uh, he didn't fool us. I mean, all I had to do is read that once, and I don't think anybody said, is he adding condition? Well, sure he is. I mean, didn't you hear it? (laughs) All right, so this is a current thing within the last few years that this was said. And this is one that uses the same language we use. So we have to watch out for what's he doing. He's defaming our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. He's presenting a false Christ, a false gospel powered by another spirit. And this guy has got thousands of followers. So I have to say something. So currently, this is the, this is the charge to the church, the local church here is to defend the ancient faith of the everlasting gospel of God's free and sovereign grace, which we call sovereign grace, with all of its vital doctrines and theology that surround it. That is is our call. That's our mission. And that's what the scripture tells us. I mean, think about scriptures like in Jude, contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. This is under the category of what we call apologetics or the defense of the faith. We've we've read this one. Be ready to give an answer of the hope that lies within you. The hope of salvation conditioned on Christ alone. We we should be ready to talk about that with people and explain it and break it down and further the idea of, of why we have assurance. Right? So no matter what truth, what particular biblical doctrine or particular aspect of theology, That's taken from scripture. It's our job collectively to know it, understand it, love it, and defend it in the clearest way possible. This is just the basics of the ministry of service. Getting the gospel out to other people. Preaching Christ and him crucified. The cross of Christ. We're determined, as Paul said, we're determined not to know anything among anybody except the cross of Christ and all its particulars and implications. So again, distinctions matter. Distinctions matter. Who would have thought that you have to even explain what the word alone means? But you do. In these five solos, you sure do. And I know that because I see compromise all over the place of people using these five alones, it's a compromise. So if we don't make distinctions, we will leave room for the doctrines of grace, the five solas, or anything else to be to be twisted, the scripture to be twisted, and not match the standard of what the scripture says about itself, about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's been happening for hundreds of years. Go back to our text in Romans. You want to look and see um, how that some of these solas spring out from the pages of the scripture. Again, a reminder, this is no new invention. We talked in the past about organizational systems for our mind to, to memorize things easier. There's nothing wrong with, with systems. We didn't have systems. Our lives would be a wreck when it comes to just practical things in the kitchen, in the bathroom, at work, we'd be messing up. In the in our checkbook, if you didn't have a system, you'd be uh, going to jail for writing bad checks. And you'd be paying all kind of fees and fines, fees and all that. So but doctrine and theologically, all more the important to have something to aid us to, to memorize things, to promote things, To other people. So that they can memorize them also. Romans 3.19. But we know whatever the things the law says. It says to them that are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped. And that all the world may be. Under the judgment of God. So we see the purpose of the law. We had mentioned that earlier. And then we go right into. Starting to see some of these things. So there's already an implication there. It's implying that. The purpose of the law is not to take it and use it to get to heaven. It's going to be redundant here about that. Because by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. So this is automatically telling us grace alone. It's ruling out works. For through the law is the knowledge of sin. There again, the purpose of the law showing that. The law is given so that we can see we're sinners. It exposes our sin and shows that we can't keep the law. So we're starting to get some peeks at some of these five solos. Verse 21, but now a righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, apart from the law as being the ground of salvation. We read in Romans ten four that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness or justification. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Here we see scripture alone. Paul is deriving his information from. You want to witness? Where are you going to get it? From the scripture. From the Old Testament. And Paul talked about how that the gospel. Was in the Old Testament. As he defined the gospel a lot of times he used. You know the death. Burial and resurrection. According to the scripture. How that he died. So. We're driven back to the scripture. Not some philosopher. Not, not some famous guy that died. You know, not some tradition. The Law and the Prophets. Now, since this was written, we have 27 more books of the New Testament that we can use as our authority and go to. And there is actually more clarity there. As the progressive nature of Of the revelation of God. Got clearer on purpose. By giving us the New Testament. In the New Covenant. Even verse 22. The righteousness of God. Through the faith of Jesus Christ. Toward all and upon all those. Who believe. Faith alone. Sola fide. Faith alone. It didn't say toward. All and upon those, upon all those who work or merit. Right? Who believe. That's faith. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Sola de gloria. There's only to the glory of God alone. This smacks up against man. The failure of man in reference to the law. We can't glory. We've got no room to glory. We can't do the law. There's nothing we can do that is either the law or some sub-law, underneath law, lower law. Whether it be our will, our sincerity, our zeal, our church attendance, our baptism. None of those lower laws even we can use and say, well, you know, we've got this uh, Christ. He's settled down in the New Testament. He's not like the rough God in the Old Testament. He'll accept these lower things. And what do you expect? I mean, God just, he'll, he'll accept... Your sincere best problem is our best is sin. Man at his best, Psalm thirty-nine five, is altogether vanity. It's nothing. We saw last week that man is less than nothing. We we can't do it. We can't do it at any stage, any phase, at any level to gain and maintain acceptance. In front of God. We've fallen short of the glory of God. The glory of God is the standard. Who is that? That's Christ. Christ is the standard. He himself is the glory of God. So look at verse um, 24. We're talking about justification. Which was one of the main focuses in uh, the reformation. Being justified freely, freely already implies grace. No payment, no merit. Freely by grace, there's redundant language there. There's some clarity here, there's some distinctions. Justified freely by grace, grace alone, through what? The redemption, which has to do with with payment. We know that's the blood of Christ. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Sola Christos, Christ alone. This also, grace alone and Christ alone, right in one verse. Verse 25, by whom God has set forth to be a, the word propitiation here is used, it means he is the satisfaction of law and justice, which is hammering against the accounts of the elect, the sinners. There's a demand and a debt that we owe to God's law and justice that we cannot pay. We've already read that in this text. All the mouths become stopped. We can't do it. We need somebody else outside of ourselves to do it in our place for us as our representative. Some payment must be made. And the wages of sin is death. He has to die this death as a sin sacrifice. A perfect, flawless Successful, effectual sin sacrifice. He is our propitiation. He is the one who satisfies law and justice and holds back the wrath of God because of what he has done here. He takes on the wrath of God coming our way. He takes it on and dispenses with it. He puts sin away by the sacrifice of himself. Whom God setting forth. To be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Sola fide, sola Christus. There is this cross of Christ. Grace alone, faith alone. To declare his righteousness. And Anytime you declare something, you're declaring it from out of the word of God. Sola scriptura, the word of God alone. To declare his righteousness through the passing by of sins that have taken place before in the forbearance of God. For the display of his righteousness, Christ alone, at this time for him to be just and the justifier of him who believes, faith alone, in Christ, Christ alone. You see that you just keep seeing it, it popping out there. We already knew these things, but I'm taking this historical system and just bringing it out because of this 500 year anniversary and, and just showing there's a danger in people looking at these things, all these five alones, and not really meaning alone. We just saw that with that quote that Piper gave in the forward of that book. He doesn't really mean alone. I mean he gave it away. He was distinct. He said, I want to be clear here. And some of the some of these people, in their forms of what they consider to be obedience, they talk about how, and this is this is how they do it. They say that. Yeah, it's faith alone, but it is not a faith that is alone. And then they take that back door and they add merit to that somehow in the reference to final salvation, to where their sanctification drives their justification. We've seen it. We've talked about it. We've exposed it. And we are seeing more and more people see it and get out of that. And it's, it's great. Verse 27, then where is Boasting. Here we go. Uh, sola de Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Where's boasting? It's not in yourself, right? It's excluded through what law of works? No. I mean, it's it's already been settled. We've already. It, Paul has just hammered on that so far, and he's not done. He's going to cover it in other chapters. No, but through the law of faith, faith alone. Therefore. We conclude that a man is justified by faith, faith alone, without works, grace alone, of the law. Now go to our text real quick and we'll conclude in uh, 1 Corinthians 1. I think I I did a four-part series or something on this text. It's on Sermon Audio uh, on verse 30, which we covered 29 and 31 with it. But uh, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 29, so that... No flesh, talking about, talking about mankind, and mainly their fleshly mindset, their thinking, their driving at a meritorious, self-righteous earning of salvation. This is what it's talking about, the flesh. It's not talking about skin, muscle, blood, and bone. It's not talking about It's talking about a fleshly mind, self-righteous mind. So that no flesh should glory in his presence. Why? Because only God gets the glory. But of the Father you are in Jesus Christ, who of God the Father, Christ is made unto us these four things. And he states it in this way to show that we cannot glory in any of these things specifically. And particularly, and this is not all. There are other things that he talks about throughout his, his word that we can't glory in. And you know what they are? Everything. We can't glory in anything. And we'll see that in the last sentence here. But of, of him, he's, he's made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. These things that Christ did for us and that he has made us, unto us as are outside of us he has done them we can't affect these things these are by grace we see them through faith and they're done by Christ and Christ gets all the glory the last verse so that according as is written here is why he mentioned these things and he connects up this last idea Just like he did in verse 29 saying the same thing. He he who glories, and it's written in the scripture alone. He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Right? Galatians 6.14 God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You could go all over the place, all over scripture and see these things. And I hope and pray that as time goes on, you are able to take these things and express them in such a way that you can convey the true meaning to people that you're talking to with distinctions. If we don't get the first one right, Scripture alone, all the rest are done. We don't preach ourselves. We don't preach you know, vain philosophy. We don't promote will worship. We preach Christ, the power of God. The power of God unto salvation. Any questions or comments? I know I could have, could have done you know five, six messages on this, but thought we'd bring it up and make some... Uh, I wanted to let people that are hearing the recording know that where we stood as a local church and what we consider our church... And what we identify with historically, uh, that we may be a little bit different than some others that would wear different names under the same umbrella. Anything at all? And most of the people I come in contact with, or have been with the church churches, monogistic, and then they'll get into sanctification being synergist. Yeah. So. I mean, that's all I've ever. Oh yeah, I heard yeah. them speak about even websites that you go to, so-called reform websites. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So monar- monergism means the energy comes from God, and what he's saying is, uh, a lot of uh, Calvinist or Reformed sovereign grace people would say justification is monergistic; it is the, everything comes from God, but they would say sanctification is synergistic—the energy coming from, at the very least, cooperation. And um, then you have ideas of progression, uh, personal. We, we went over all this in the Lordship series. Personal holiness and the progression. And uh, if you don't toe the line, you're not going to see the Lord in the end, which is kind of like what we just read that Piper just said. You know, To me, uh, I, I don't know if anybody can understand this, hopefully, but when Piper says things like this, and says them clear and distinct. This is good. This is good. We can point them out and say. Here's what he's saying. If, you're gonna fo- if you guys are going to follow. You know with the people we talk to. Outside of here. Nobody in here is going to follow him. But if you guys are going to follow this guy. Go to his stupid conferences. And buy in his books. And support his ministry. This is, not the, this is not the first lie he's told. This is just one of many. If you're going to follow this guy, you've got the problem. And you keep hammering on these distinctions patiently and lovingly and show them what he's saying. From what I understand, you know, some of these guys are are ganging up in favor of what he's saying. And they're trying to go back into some of the confessions and say, yep, yeah, this is this is where this says this in this old confession. See, I told you that. You can take any confession and make it you can take anything and make it say what you want. So there's a danger. Evil men shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And the closer you can come, I mean you can talk about you know, Piper talks about double predestination and, and people thinks he leans towards super lapsarianism he you know, he uses some of the same language. This is this is the more dangerous fella. If he can talk like the way we talk and talk like the scripture talks, but tweak some of these other things to slide in conditions on the backside of final salvation. If we care about people and we see them following somebody like that or or teaching like him, if you care about them, you need to show as much care as you would some that you're evangelizing like if they're an atheist. You have to present the gospel in a clear, concise way. Dogmatic way that goes to the ground of salvation from start to finish and show there's no there, there's God is not going to let a, let a thief and a robber climb up another way. He will not share his glory. He will not accept strange fire on the altar. It's all wickedness. So we have to warn people, send the alarm out. Now, of course, as always, we're going to be called uh, haters, you know, uh, unloving. Uh, impatient, uh, hyper-Calvinist, antinomian. Uh, it's stuff I've already been called before. And But don't let this truth stop you from moving forward. You're going to get those. Scripture says they hated me, they're going to hate you. All right. If there's nothing else, we'll stop there.